0: Hello and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona during our normal service. and I'm happy to be preaching with you today. Um, so this morning we are indeed starting this new series on the beliefs and identity, something that I've been teasing now for a while. Um, actually in January, I mentioned in passing, like after Easter, uh, we would explore just like our beliefs together. Um, so I kind of dropped a little tiny reference to this several months back. Uh, Easter came and went. Um, we did a short series on the prophet Nahum, um, and then two weeks ago I talked about my own faith story, and my own journey with you, Last week we took a bit of a pause because it was kind of kind of an, an off week, uh, but yeah, that two weeks ago that served as a, as a bit of a precursor and forerunner to where we're going now. As just we explore our own uh, church's story, um, and I often use this analogy, and I didn't come up with this; I have no idea who came up with it. But uh, that Christ- Christianity uh, beliefs—it's kind of like a river. Um, it started at Pentecost in 30 A.D., and it grew as it grew in kind of like. Uh, uh, along, it started to branch out. So like a river kind of starts and then kind of all these branches start to form. Um, and there was a first major split happening in 1054, so it was kind of a river, and then they went two ways. Um, and then during the Reformation, about 500 years later, a bunch more uh, uh, splits and streams started to happen more and more downstream. So that's like one analogy I often talk about when you talk, when you talk about faith. Um, another analogy I've heard about Christianity is it's almost like a house. Um, and there's, there's these more and more rooms being added to it. Uh, but they're all contained within the same house. So they share a lot of uh, similarities, but they're kind of like uh, different rooms all in this same building. And so we find ourselves in this particular stream, in this particular room called the Church of the Brethren. And our story comes after the Reformation, uh, where there's this guy, Alexander Mack, and several of his companions. They started this new movement in Germany in the early 1700s. And as they were kind of like trying to figure out how to live their faith, how to like live their lives, they were inspired by two different groups that, that had come before them. There was two, two groups within their midst that looked around, and they were like, hey, these guys are kind of doing it right. We want to kind of like take these traditions and move on with them. And those two groups were um, the Anabaptists and the Radical Pietists. Uh, Anabaptists and Radical Pietists. Uh, these were the two movements that inspired the creation of this new stream that we're a part of. So our plan is to talk about these things Um, what does it mean to say we are rooted in anabaptism Uh, what does it mean to say that part of our story is that we are rooted in radical pietism and so that's going to be this focus of kind of where we're going with uh sermons over the next few weeks and months um and so uh, to explore basically what this means and so the first kind of uh, uh in this series will be on what exactly does it mean to be an anabaptist and as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, um, there is that box in the back. If you have questions along the way, things that you're confused about, things that you don't understand, things that you don't like, like fill out that, fill, fill it out, put it in there. And hopefully that'll help guide our discussion. Um, so again, that, that, that will help with, with our future. Um, so let's uh, pray and then we will dive in. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful for the teachings of Jesus. Uh, we are thankful for the truth of that when he first spoke it. Uh, the truth of that throughout the ages, and the truth of that for us today. Uh, Lord, we uh, pray that we just learn to understand just our own story and our faith tradition more as we dive into the series. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. Uh, but we pray that we learn to continue to learn to be, uh, better be your disciples uh, and to learn to just uh, go out and live that in the world. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> the word Anabaptist. That's one of those weird terms where if you're not familiar with it, it can kind of raise some confusion and some questions for you. Because you say that word, and it kind of sounds like the word Baptist, uh, which is a common word. Everyone has heard of the word Baptist, whether you've, whether you've been to a Baptist church or not. And so someone hears you, hears you say that, and they're like, did you just like, mispronounce the word Baptist? Like, are you kind of slurring your speech? Or like, are you kind of drunk right now? Like, why did you say Baptist, but kind of like off a little bit? Um, it also kind of sounds like you're saying the word anti-baptist, that you like hate the Baptists, or you like hate the concept of baptism and you're like, oh, we we in the Bible, it clearly says you should never baptize anyone. So we are just antithetical towards anything with baptism. So those are kind of the two common things when you say that word. If you're not familiar with it, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so let's talk about this. Like, what does this word mean? Let's talk about etymology. Let's talk about word semantics. Let's get nerdy for a minute. Love that. Um, So the word Anna, A-N-A, that means to redo or to do again. Anna, to redo. And then baptize means just, you know, put someone underwater. And so the term basically means uh, one who baptizes again. Uh, Those who rebaptize. That's what the term means. Um, And this word did not always exist. It came up during the Reformation. Um, During the Reformation, uh, there was Martin Luther, we always slap his name to the start of this movement, Um, but as we've highlighted in other sermons, uh, there was a lot of different reformations that were kind of going on all at the same time. It wasn't just Martin Luther, it was a bunch of people kind of like asking the same kinds of questions and kind of like reformulating things. Um, And so uh, there was one group in particular, as as they were looking around, as they were questioning like how things were being done, um, they came to the conclusion that the right and the proper way to baptize someone was as an adult. As they read the scriptures, as they looked back at church history, as they kind of just did all the soul-searching, they were like, you know what? We should probably be baptizing adults and not babies. Um, And that's not what was the practice at at that time and at that that day and age. In 1500s, 1600s Europe, you were baptized as a baby into a state-run church. Into a state-sponsored church, the, the, the church and the state were unified together, and so it basically meant, hey, if you were born in Germany, you were baptized as a baby, and then like, now you're Christian because you're born here. If you were born in Spain in, you know, 1530 or whatever, you, hey, you're Spanish, you're a Christian, let the donkey under water as a baby because that is what that means. And the Anabaptists they started to kind of like, question this. They started to kind of like think about things a little bit, and they said, hey, your national origin is not what makes you a believer. Like, where you're born does not make you a Christian. It's a belief in Christ that makes you this. And so they started to re-baptize, to anabaptize adults, which at the time was incredibly dangerous. It was considered an act of treason. It was considered an act of sedition because you were going against the state. Remember, church and state were one, and you were basically saying, like, eh, none of that matters. I'm going to go off. And do my own thing, you know. Nowadays, we, we talk about this and it can be a little bit uh, puzzling because nowadays you can be baptized a hundred different times, and no one would bat an eye. They'd be like, "Good for you! I'm glad you got baptized again." Um, but 500 years ago, it could literally be a death sentence. Like people were literally killed over this. Christians were killing and putting in jail and like hurting other Christians because of baptism. Um, and so this Anabaptist stream has continued in various forms and pockets. Again, our story is rooted in this, as are Mennonites and Amish and other groups nationally and around the globe. And so when it comes to this question of, okay, like, that's where that word means, um, uh, what, is, what is exactly the, does that mean, though? Like, what does, what like, it mean to be an Anabaptist? Okay, you, you guys believe in baptizing adults? Okay, that makes sense. I get that. Uh, but what, what, like, what unites you all? What are your creeds? What are your founding documents? That question, it gets a little bit tricky because there hasn't been this like, all-inclusive guide that helps spell this out. There's not this like, paper that says, like, hey, everybody has agreed on these things all the time. There isn't some code of conduct. There isn't some sort of form that everyone signs to, to join in. Um, that doesn't necessarily exist, uh, but as you study various Anabaptist pockets, as you read their writings, as you talk to people who are invested in this kind of stuff, what you start to see is you notice certain themes you notice certain patterns. You start to pick up on commonalities and unifying ideas that kind of tend to circle around the same themes in theology. So basically, you start to, like, talk to all these people, and you're like, you know what? Like, you're all kind of, like, asking the same kinds of questions. You're all kind of, like, circling around the same kinds of ideas. You don't really write it down, but you're all kind of, like, thinking very similar things. So it's a framework to understanding faith, that a lot of different groups subscribe to, and then you practice in a variety of ways. So there's a lot of commonalities, but like, like that stream analogy, as it kind of like goes on with history, like it, it kind of plays itself out in different ways. And when I'm talking to people about our, like our church, and they say like, okay, I've, I've never heard of you guys, like what do you believe, what sets you apart? I usually use the following example. I usually say like, hey, are you familiar with Amish? And yes, everyone is familiar with Amish. If you grew up around it or not, everyone knows the Amish. And then I say this, is like if you take our core ideas, if you take the things that we value, the things that we find important, and like you take all of those things and you push them really, really, really far and get really extreme with them, you become Amish. Um, and that, like, usually people get that, that analogy uh, kind of lands, people understand that. And I realize like, that might not be the best thing to say, maybe that's not the best selling point. Uh, maybe for some people, they would be uh, off put by that, but I think, again, people kind of get that. But if you have a better analogy, if you have a better example, I would love to hear it because I'm going to continue to use this one until I hear a better ones. So if you have a better marketing tool, please let me know because I want to, I want to sell this kind of stuff. Um, and, and again, there isn't necessarily this textbook that clearly lays all this out. Like every single group, you know, like believe in this kind of stuff. Um, but again, there are themes, there are ideas that seem to transcend different groups. Um, and again, we've been highlighting this book uh, by Stuart Murphy called The Naked Anabaptist. And he does a phenomenal job at outlining and summing up some of those basic. Core themes, those basic core ideas. Uh, to be clear, he doesn't cover everything, doesn't cover every single topic, there's certain things he doesn't get into all that much. You could read it and be like, well, he wish he talked about this, or I don't agree with this. Like, that's totally fine. Like, I'm not saying this is like the most perfect book ever written, uh, but this is a really good starting place for having this conversation. So if you're really looking for a, a just a helpful, basic, down-to-earth guide of what, what you know, unites folks that are part of this Anabaptist stream? What unites folks that are part of this Anabaptist room? Like This is a very good starting place. And so Murray has these seven core, convic- uh, seven core convictions, and he's gonna frame our sermons for the next six or seven weeks. And the first core conviction is this, that Jesus is our example, our teacher, our friend, redeemer, and Lord. He is the source of our life, the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, for our understanding of church and our engagement with society. We are committed to following Jesus as well as worshiping him. That's the first uh, core conviction. And hopefully, um, right off the bat, we can read this, and we can all affirm this and say, like, yeah, I'm down with that. That sounds pretty good. Um, I would imagine anyone here who's re- reading this would, you know, find this not like terribly controversial. You always want to start with like some basic stuff. You don't want to get super controversial right away. And hopefully, we're all like, yeah, I think I, that makes sense. That sounds like something I could have written. You know, it sounds pretty basic. Um, You know, even if you're not necessarily necessarily sure about a lot of things in regards to faith, like if you're just, you have a lot of questions about things, you would probably understand, like, hey, to be a Christian means that you value and you put emphasis on Jesus. Like, that would be a basic starting point for most people. Um, And so really, on some level, this first point could pretty much be, like, non-controversial in just about any kind of a church. Like, you could go into a Catholic church and talk about this idea. You could go into an, an Orthodox church, talk about this idea. You could go into a Baptist church or like a Presbyterian church, kind of talk about this idea, and everyone would be like, yeah, like, that makes sense, I can buy into this, like, I, I'm, I'm following you. Um, this idea also kind of transcends time and culture as well. But if you were to go to like 600s, like Japan, and like talk about this, that would be true then. If you were to go to Egypt in like the 12th century, you could talk about this. If you go to 1700s, like Phoenix, like in the Wild West, and talk about this idea, be like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I I buy that. You know, like we all have buy-in on this concept. All right. So, what is it about this conviction then that's like that's so that's so important? Like, why are we highlighting our focus on Jesus? Like, what about this can we flesh out and talk a little bit a little bit more about? So, let's do that. Let's, let's talk about that. Um. So earlier when we heard from Mark chapter eight in which Jesus predicts his death and Peter is like not a fan of this. I'll put I'll put part of the uh part of that back on the screen. Again. Not not the whole thing, but part of it. Um, Peter's like, hey, why are you saying this? Like, this is a bad idea. We are not going to let that happen. And then Jesus, to quote the King James, uh, issues that infamous line of like, get thee behind me, Satan. And you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Um, And he goes on and he says, if you call yourself my disciple, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. You need to pick up your cross and follow me. Um, And what benefit do you gain? What benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Uh, This teaching right here, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So three three of the four Gospels, we see this teaching. Uh, The the get thee behind me, Satan, that doesn't appear in Luke, uh, but this general teaching about following him, taking up your cross, we see that in three of the Gospels. And in the 1500s, 1600s, when those first Anabaptists were forming, Uh, They started to look back on things. They they had 1,500 years of like history to look back on, and they started to notice something, something that wasn't lining up. Um, There was an observation as to how things had gone in regards to the idea of following and worshiping Jesus over the past 1,500 years. Um, This is an observation that has continued to be confirmed long after this first group, um, and sadly, this is an observation that continues to be observed uh, and uh, to be true today. Um, And the observation is this. This is what the first Anabaptists noticed. This is something that kind of continues on and on and on. It's very easy to claim worship of Jesus at the expense of following him. It's very easy to claim that you worship Jesus and kind of forget about the following part. Um, There's often a disconnect between worshiping and also following Jesus. Now, all of us make the claim that we do both. But when push comes to shove, especially historically, uh, there tends to be a breakdown in the aspect of following him. You know, everyone says, like, hey, we love Jesus, we worship Jesus, but the following part, like, that's where, like, it gets a little tricky. Because, you know, it's easy to spout off words of praise. It's easy to come up with these, like, beautiful creeds, this beautiful prayer, this beautiful hymn. It's another thing entirely to take his teachings to heart and to actually put them into practice. Take those difficult words to like sell everything you have or love your enemies or turn the other cheek. Like, it's hard to actually do those things in practice. It's very easy to put up a a picture on the wall and be like, oh, we love this picture. It's easy to put a cross around your neck. It's easy to put like like a little quote in your Facebook page or whatever that is. Like we all do those things, and those things are good and important. But it's another thing entirely to take his truth and to like live them out. In the first few centuries following Pentecost the church grew like crazy, and all sorts of people started to follow Jesus. Um, but in the, first few, in the first few hundred years after Pentecost, um, the church was always a persecuted minority. It was this underground thing that carried the potential of, of jail time or even death. And so in the, in the first 300 or so years of Christianity, if you said, like, hey, I follow Jesus, that was actually like a potential threat on your life. You could go to jail for that, you could be hung for that, you could be put on a cross for that, you could, you could um, be, be killed for that. Um, there was no prestige with following Jesus. There was no privilege with following Jesus. It was pretty much actually the exact opposite of that. Um, and there were tons and tons and tons of murders in the early church. A lot of dying and death and, and killing and beating and all that kind of stuff. And then something happened in the 4th century. Um, everything suddenly changes with the Emperor Constantine. So up until this point, again, the church is a persecuted minority. Uh, to, be, to claim an allegiance to Christ did not get you any favors in the world, and everything changed with Constantine. And there's a story that goes like this. Uh, Constantine, he was the emperor. He was about to go into battle, and he has this uh, dream or this vision of the Cairo symbol. It's up here on the screen. Uh, Cairo is the first two letters of the word Christ. It's a, kind of a Christian symbol that was used back in the day. It's, it's still used now and he has this vision, this dream, he sees this symbol and he hears a voice and the voice says to him, in this sign you shall conquer. And so he ends up putting this, you know, you're about to go into battle and you hear a voice saying, hey, in the sign you, you, you will win. Like, you might take that to heart. You're like, hey, you know what? I don't know if I'm gonna win or not, so let's just try this thing, I heard a voice, right? And so he takes this sign, he puts it on the shields of his troops and he's successful in battle And this continues to cement his rule. This continues to cement his power. Shortly after this, Constantine was not a Christian. He didn't really know anything about it. He converts to Christianity, and he brings it from this persecuted minority at the margins to being in the majority. Christianity goes from the sidelines, like no one cares about it. It's like, why are you doing that thing? You could be hurt and killed for it. To suddenly it's the majority, and everybody is Christian. It's at the front and center of everything. And historians, others, they'll debate some of the facts, like some of these details. Like, you know, did Constantine, did he really have this vision? Did he really have this dream? Like, that's something we can debate. You know, none of us are Constantine. I have no idea. Um, But the victory did indeed happen. Like, he did actually put those signs on on his shields. And the impact of the church also happened as well. And again, there was this wild, wild, wild shift overnight where it went from, uh, if you were a Christian, you could possibly go to jail, where suddenly if you were not a Christian, it was almost like you weren't even part of society anymore. Like, like the roles flipped, the roles were reversed. And Christianity is suddenly able to flourish publicly. And to be clear, a lot of good things came from this. Like we could certainly highlight some of the good things that came from this flip. But there was an incredibly dangerous dark side to this as well, where Jesus went from the margins to the center. And the message and the themes and the life of Jesus went from like welcoming welcoming in the stranger and caring about the poor to suddenly being about power and control. Uh, The church grew and expanded and suddenly had gained the world, but at what cost? Many would argue in referencing uh, Mark 8, at the cost of her soul. Uh, Jesus began to be worshiped everywhere, but not exactly. Followed. And you need to have both of these things to have a healthy faith perspective. Because how do you worship a guy that said, sell all of your possessions, come and follow me, you'll have treasures in heaven? Where suddenly, like, you're the one with all the possessions um, while you're running this state-sponsored church. Like those two ideas don't fit together. How do you live out that call to love your enemies when you have a sword in one hand with a shield and a symbol of the cross in the other? And how do you love your enemy when Christ causes to have no enemies and the person you're swinging the sword against is probably professing that same faith as well? Like, how do you do that? Like, those two ideas don't fit together. How do you reconcile the fact that the very empire who murdered Jesus, like Rome killed Jesus, that empire killed Jesus 300 years prior to this, and now they're wanting him as their figurehead. Now they're wanting to put statues and pictures of him all over the place. Like, how do you reconcile those two ideas? you really can't. Like, how do you gain the world without losing your soul in the process? Like, you can't. The, the oppressed suddenly becomes now the oppressor. And so we call this period in the rise of Christianity under Constantine. We call this period Christendom. Um, this is a period that lasts about 1,500 years or so. Kind of like, often around the time of the Enlightenment is when we say kind of Christendom goes away. Um, many would understand um, the beginning of Christendom as the fall of the church when she was first led astray by power and influence and then she continues to be led astray by power and influence time and time and time again you know when we talk about the fall we often say like oh that's Genesis 3 that's like the fall of humanity you know humans are created and just a short while later they see the allure of the forbidden fruit and they fall and I think you could make a, a similar case with the global church as well The church is instituted at Pentecost and a short time later, not too far after this, they see the allure of the forbidden fruit of power and they have their own fall as well. That's not to say that everything was perfect before that, not to say there weren't problems and faults before that, but there was definitely that change that took place in the fourth century. And again, by the time you get to the Reformation, flash forward a thousand years, Europe was Christianized, everyone was Christian, but again at what cost? At the cost of, if you said, you know what, I want to get re-baptized as an, as an adult, you could be put to death for this. Again, people who are claiming uh, faith in Christ were killing you because you were choosing to get re-baptized. Like, that's madness, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Europe is Christianized, but at what cost? At the cost of scouring the globe for new lands, stealing like, countless wealth from those that were already living there. At, at the cost of enslaving people, threatening them with death unless they converted. Like, we did, like, massive untold damage to all sorts of people around the globe during this time under the guise of following Christ, under the guise of, like, hey, we're Christians. This is the right thing to do. This is what we are called to do. Um, But in those first 1,500 years of Christendom, we did a lot of good, sure. But, man, like, we did a lot of bad as well. A lot of the very bloody and violent wars were fought, countless killed under the guise of worshiping Christ. It's easy to say you worship Christ and then go out and kill in his name. It's another thing entirely to follow him, to take that even remotely seriously and then want to go out and do that. Because you read the gospels, you read about the life of Christ and like, it's really hard to walk away from that and say, you know what? I think the one thing Jesus wants me to do is take a sword and kill other people. Like, you just don't find that in there, and yet that was happening again and again and again. And so the Reformation happening. The Bible is being put into the language of the people. People are reading it, kind of rediscovering things for the first time. Uh, you have people reading about the life of Christ. Uh, the Spirit is working in, in, in new ways and new people. You have different movements, different pockets that spring up. You have people like Martin Luther, people like John Calvin, and they're putting out some really great ideas, some new, new ideas. Things needed to be reformed. They did a lot of good things. They got the ball rolling. Uh, but the Anabaptists, the radical wing, they took some of those ideas and they went even further with them. Um, and they, they noticed, like, hey, like, everyone's reading the Bible again. That's awesome. We're reading the Old Testament again. That's good. That's really important. But suddenly, like, the Old Testament, like, some of those laws are being, like, like uh, overshadowing what Christ is saying. And they're like, hey, like, maybe we're getting some of that kind of stuff wrong. Like, read your Old Testament, but yeah, like, like read it like Christ, like, kind of supersedes that. Um, They noticed that, like, hey, people are reading the New Testament. That's good. We're reading about the life of Paul, which is good, and we need this. But again, that was being done at the expense of, like, what Jesus is saying. Um, They noticed that there was, like, a lot of emphasis being put on the death of Jesus, which is good and important, and we need to talk about that. But there was, like, just a lack of putting emphasis on his life and what he calls us to do. And isn't that sort of what it's all about? It's not just about worshiping Jesus, but about following him about living out what he says to do. You know, and to be clear, the Anabaptists weren't the first group to do this, you have like monastic movements that come before them, like they sell, they saw like, hey, there's a lot of power and control, like let's just flee and live in caves. Like you certainly have groups that are doing that as well. Um, and during this time, the idea of creeds became very important, this idea like, hey, let's write down everything uh, that we believe. And the creeds certainly do have their time and their place. Uh, but by and large, most of the creeds that existed just glossed over the life and teachings of Jesus. They went straight to his death and they talked about, like, hey, what do you need to believe here? Um, to quote the 16th century German Anabaptist theologian Hans Denk, no one can know Christ unless he follows him in life. Like, that's the kind of creed that, like, we should be following. And so, again, you can style out all kinds of beautiful theology, but if you're not living it, if you're not practicing it, then, like, what does it actually matter? Jesus is our example teacher, a friend, Redeemer, and Lord. He is the source of our life, the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, for our understanding of church and our engagement with society. We are committed to following Jesus as well as worshiping him. And so to be rooted in an Anabaptist understanding of faith means we don't just gather together and we worship him on Sundays, but that we seek to follow him with our whole selves as we go about our week. And so worshiping and following, they go hand in hand together. And so let this be a guiding principle for everyone as we continue to work uh, together in worshiping and following Christ. And with the idea of following Christ, we're going to now move into our time of communion, which is something that uh, Christians, regardless of whether they're Anabaptists or not, uh, took very seriously. Christ says, like, hey, share uh, share this meal and kind of talk about what I did. He kind of issues this new command. And so that's something that, like, We've taken very seriously from the beginning of this thing. So we're going to move into uh, that time now. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.